turn with me to uh, Matthew and chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19. And um, as you are making your way there, uh, allow me to begin by thanking the organizers of this conference uh, for having me back after many, many years uh, to be part of uh, the conference, have fellowship with you. A number of you are familiar faces from uh, a few years back, and then also to have the privilege of uh, uh, speaking here. I've been asked to handle uh, three topics, and uh, all the topics are related to our work as shepherds, and not so much in terms of our lives. I think the other uh, preachers are handling how we experience that in pastoral marriages and pastoral families. Mine is to talk about our work. In other words, how do we deal with the flock that we are shepherding in such a way that we honor God uh, in the lives of God's people as they live in their marriages. My very first topic, as you may have noticed from uh, the program, is preaching biblical marriage in a secular age. And I trust that the very way in which the topic is phrased is meant to bring out the contrast that we are living in a secular age which has its own definitions of marriage. And notice I've used the plural there. There's no real agreed um, definition of marriage, but it is, you know, whatever it is you want, uh, that's what you end up with, and so forth. And that's really the context that we live in today. We're coming from uh, traditional values of uh, marriage, which are now also being thrown uh, out together with uh, the dirty bathwater. And so the, the, the most popular view is simply that people who like each other begin to live together. When they don't like each other, they go their separate ways. It's as simple as that. And consequently, what matters the most is um, in, in terms of just making sure that there is some kind of fairness at the point at which individuals are parting. The challenge that we have is whether we as a church and we as pastors should acquiesce to that, whether we should conform to it, or whether we should stick to what the Bible teaches concerning marriage. And ultimately, the view that we hope to present even this evening is that it doesn't matter what is happening and changing in our society, our community, our different nations, we are to still teach what the Bible teaches concerning marriage. That's our job, is to simply declare the mind of God. Now, thankfully, we have an example of this, and it is found for us in Matthew chapter 19, and more specifically, beginning with verse 3. Uh, what we have there is a situation of a current understanding being brought face to face with a biblical understanding. And thankfully, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, stands on the side of Scripture. So let's just quickly read that, and then we will uh, look at the context look at the content, and then uh, conclude. So really, that's uh, the work that we have this evening. All right, so we'll read that. Matthew chapter 19, beginning with verse 3. The Bible says, And Pharisees came up to him 
and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning, It was not so. And I said to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. We'll end our reading there. As I said to you, it's fairly evident here that our Lord Jesus Christ uh, is giving us something of an example that we ourselves should follow as we are laboring away in the world. He came as a savior. He came as a priest in order to offer himself um, as a sacrifice for sin, but he also came as a prophet. He came to make known to us the mind of God. And it is that second role that we also are called in to play as we proclaim uh, what the Bible says concerning marriage. So what do we learn this evening from the example of our Lord Jesus Christ? First of all, the context. The context. I'm sure you're aware that the Pharisees were perhaps the worst enemies of the Lord Jesus Christ. They wanted him discredited. They, in fact, wanted him dead. And in the end, they achieved their purpose. And so even in this text, when they came with the question, that is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause, the Bible makes it clear in our text that it was, in fact, not as learners wanting to learn from him, they came as individuals to put him to the test. Uh, We are told here, the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking. And really, in posing the question they did, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause, it is coming from what is taught by Moses in Deuteronomy 24, verse 1 to verse 4. And uh, I'll quickly want us to peep there, uh, although we will not have time to open up that text. Um, Deuteronomy 24 and the first four verses. Uh, the Bible says there, When a man takes a wife and marries her, If then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her. That little phrase there. She finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her. Well, the story goes on. And he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. And she departs out of his house, and if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies who took her to be his wife, then her former husband, that is the first husband, who sent her away, may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled 
for that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. So it's really this passage of scripture and the, the effort to understand and apply this not finding favor in the eyes of the man and also something indecent about her. We learn from scholars that there were essentially two schools of thought. Uh, one was the Shammai school of thought that said that this had to be gross indecency. In other words, something that's very, very, very serious. Uh, not necessarily adultery, because often in those days you lost your life if you were guilty of that. But there was another school of thought, the Hallel school, and for them it was literally anything that you would be offended by as a man. It did not matter what it was. Someone cooked a poor meal, a wife did that, and you could send her packing. Well, with these two schools of thought, Jesus was being put on the spot. On which side would he fall? On the side of gross indecency or on the side of anything? They were simply putting him to the test. And in many ways, brethren, you will agree with me that often when you are asked in today's situation anything about marriage, often it's not that the person wants to learn from you. They want to set you up. They want to test you. And often, especially if there's more than one individual asking you, you can be sure you are about to offend someone. Whichever answer you give, especially when it is related to the subject of divorce and remarriage. What therefore we need to learn to do, especially in a secular age as we are in right now, where views are as varied as the number of people in this room, is to say, but what is God's mind about this? So that we're not saying, well, I think this is my opinion, but we are saying, well, according to what I have learned from the good old book, this is what God says. And that's what we find our Savior doing. Let's go back to Matthew and chapter 19. When Jesus is asked, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He tells us, first of all, in verse 4, he answered, have you not read? Have you not read? In other words, the Lord Jesus Christ, though he is God, and consequently could have, as it were, shot from the hips to give a direct answer, immediately simply challenges the Pharisees by saying, well, look, there is what is already in writing concerning the nature of marriage. It's already in print, as it were. And all we need to do at this stage is to go back to that divine reference manual in order for us to learn from there. Now that should make our work pretty easy as pastors. If we can only learn to do that, to say, let's get back to the Bible. Let us study this book. What does it say? And the reason is quite simple. It's the fact that marriage was not a human invention. We did not come up with it 
as a good idea as human beings. It is a gift of God. Ours is the task of being good stewards of it. That's all. Otherwise, someone else made it, and in making it, he provided a user's manual or an operator's manual or a manufacturer's manual, whatever phrase you might want to use. Now, all of you will recognize that when you buy anything that's really an expensive gadget, it normally comes with that little book that goes by one of those titles. Uh, you will notice while I'm with you here that I'm carrying quite a big camera, almost the size of uh, my own height. Bit of exaggeration there. Uh, but the, the, the flash itself has a very thick manual that teaches you how to use the flash. Well, the camera itself has an even bigger manual in terms of how you are to ensure that you operate uh, that big thing in an appropriate way. The one who made it, the company that made it, has ensured that there is a book to go with it. Well, God has done the same thing concerning human life. He's done the same thing especially concerning marriage. It is written in the good old book. We should run to it and refer to it. The second thing that we see from our Lord is that in going back to the good old book, he doesn't go to Deuteronomy, where he knew the question was coming from. He went right past, all the way to the book of Genesis, to answer that question. Look at the way he puts it. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And even later on, when they said, hey, but look, Moses permitted us to do this, look at the way he answered in verse 8. He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning, it was not so. In other words, in order for us to rightly understand marriage, we need to go to the period before the fall, because that's where it was given. It was not a redemptive ordinance. It was a creative or creation one. And therefore, we are to go back there and ask the question, well, when marriage first came out of God's hand, as it were, as a gift to us as human beings, what kind of institution was it? And it's important to do so. Because it must be defined in its own right. Back home in Zambia, we have individuals who um, want to appear rich, but they're not really rich. And so they end up buying you know, Mercedes-Benz vehicles that were probably for the 1960s or 1970s. Yes, it looks like a Mercedes-Benz until you get a ride in it. And you find that as you sit there and you try to hold on to anything, you are quickly, oh, so, so, don't, 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 don't. It, it, it might come apart there. Don't, don't, don't hold on to it. And so you don't quite enjoy the Mercedes-Benz ambience because the shocks are gone you can't open the windows, the aircon is gone, and so on. But they still want to say, I own a Benz. Now, marriage can be like that. If we 
get too carried away with the divorce rate and what people are saying about their bad marriage and, and so on and so forth, we can easily define marriage in a very unfair way. We need to go back to that Mercedes-Benz that's coming out of the factory line with plastics still on the seats on the inside. Aha! That experience is the real Mercedes-Benz. That's what Jesus is doing here. He says, you're asking me about marriage. Well, let's go to the factory. Let us see marriage coming out of this building where God has put it together. Let's examine it. Let's experience it. Let's see what it really is. Well, brethren, let's go there. Genesis and chapter 2. Genesis and chapter 2. The passage that was read to us a little earlier. What do we learn there? Well, first of all, we see the need that God saw in verse 18 of Genesis and chapter 2, when he said, then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. It's fairly clear there that it was God's idea. We've already touched on that. But in our teaching and preaching biblical marriage, let's emphasize it. For all we know, Adam was blissfully ignorant of a need that was in his life. But God himself said, what we have up to this point is not good, or better still, it is not good enough. Let us give this person a companion, but more than a companion, a suitable helper, someone with whom he will be able to fulfill the purpose that I have for him in this life. Well, we are shown in the following verses, Adam doing some amount of the work that God had given him. But at the end of verse 20, we are told, but for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. In other words, in the whole of creation, there wasn't a companion that would fit him in being an assistant for the purpose that God had created him. And then it was out of that that God, in his own initiative, we are told in verse 21, that the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs, closed up its place with flesh, and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. We are already seeing there, that therefore marriage is between a man and a woman. Once upon a time, that did not even need to be said. In today's world, we need to say it with a megaphone. We need to shout loudly that that's the way God intended it to be. He made a woman and brought her to the man. We are told that the man rejoiced and said, This at last is born of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. 
I don't have all the time in the world to open that up. Let me quickly run on to verse 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Clearly, what we have there is the coming together of a man and a woman in marriage. Up to this point, there was no father or mother. Adam did not have parents other than God, his creator. It's fairly obvious that this was being plugged in there in order for us to, show, to see the normal way in which marriage comes into being. In other words, what we have in this verse is something that had become the norm. And Moses, in ensuring that this was being written, would have wanted to enshrine it into permanence. That we may see that the biblical nature of marriage involves a living, a cleaving, and one that results in becoming one flesh. And that's what we ought to insist on as we are teaching biblical marriage. The aspect of living refers to the commencement of a totally new unit. It is not an extension of a previous marriage or a previous home. There is an actual living before the cleaving. Now where I come from, which is back home in Zambia, we are not yet at the danger of the secular age. We are more in the cultural norm. And when you emphasize what I'm emphasizing here right now, that there is an actual living, that as a man's family, you are not gaining a daughter into your family, you're actually also losing a son. The two are starting a totally independent unit, their own government. And it doesn't matter how powerful an uncle you might be, you are going to find yourself there as a mere visitor. They get upset. In fact, I recall one situation where uh, I went to visit the home of a couple that had married and had preached something like this, and the man's mother was visiting. As soon as I went through the door, she says, Aha, I've been waiting to talk to you. I not only disagreed with what you said when you preached at my son's wedding, I was actually very upset. Where were you when I was nursing this boy? Bringing him up for you now to come and tell me that today I'm a mere visitor to his home. And on and on she went. Thankfully, the son had been taught sufficiently for him to say, it's not just what my pastor was saying, that's also what I believe as a Christian, which did not endear him to his mother. But it's an important point because, remember, we must be preaching biblical marriage. It doesn't matter what context we are in, whether it's a cultural or secular age. And then there is the cleaving, the cleaving. And it is this cleaving that must be emphasized as a bond, a most permanent bond. It is a bond in which the man and the woman are the closest possible unit on the planet. Closer, in fact, 
than the children that God gives them when he pleases to give them children. Again, that's a matter that we often fight over in our context back home. To say to a man that, yes, these may be your children, but there's somebody closer to you than your children. Your wife. Often the answer is, no, but she's not my blood. So what? There's nothing about blood here. It is that a man shall leave his father and mother, and my version uses the phrase, and hold fast, hold closely, hold tightly, hold intimately to his wife, and they become one flesh. This bond also refers to a covenant relationship. A covenant relationship which is absolutely exclusive. It's not supposed to have a third person entering into it. It is a man leaving his father and mother and holding fast to his wife and not to his wives. It is between one man and one woman. That's the biblical teaching. And in that relationship, the man is the head. Because remember, God was giving him a helper fit for him, a helper suitable for him. And then the wife comes alongside him as one who submits to his leadership as one who is a suitable helper, as we have seen. Therefore, if we had the time, we would go into a number of passages across the Bible, but these are truths that we must insist on. That the man's responsibility, therefore, is to love his wife with tender, loving care. We'll come to see the example of the Lord Jesus Christ a little later on. The high example. And then the wife is to support and submit to her husband's leadership. Again, we will see the example of the church in that respect. But the point I want to mention here very quickly as we proceed is the fact that it's not a 50 to 50% racial agreement. So you come halfway and I meet you halfway. No. The man's love for his wife is to be 100%. Whether she is giving him the support and submission he loves or not, he is to love her with tender, loving care, sacrificial love, nourishing her, cherishing her 100%. Wives as well. You may have a husband who is tyranny, walking on two feet. We must still teach the wife submission. You cannot have a two-headed monster in the home. There can only be one. Yours must be one of submission. But let's hurry on. Because the becoming one flesh that we go on to notice here at the end of verse 24 reminds us that it is the only legitimate context for sexual union. The one flesh may have a number of other implications, such as simply being one, but as we look at it with hindsight from the New Testament, it's fairly clear that it also refers to sexual union. 
It is the only legitimate context. Again, in today's secular world, they will say to you, that's being ultra-conservative. They will say to you that you're talking about something that may have been true in a bygone era. But brethren, we must teach it. That's our job. We must preach it. That, as the book of Hebrews puts it, the marriage bed must be maintained with all its purity. And one of the reasons why this makes sense is because the marriage then becomes the right ambience for the fruit of sexual union. That is, children. For children to come into the world, for children to be nurtured all the way to adulthood. They need both that masculine father figure and the feminine mother figure. That's the norm. That's what God, the one who instituted marriage, put into place in order to ensure that the coming generation is prepared in a biblical way. If we go a few verses before to chapter 1, and beginning with verse 26, we notice that marriage was part of the idea, and it was in that marriage context that children were to come forth. Genesis 1 and verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful, notice, and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the ground. It is in this context that children are to be brought up and turned into stewards of God's world and unleashed upon the world so that we can say our job is done. The multiplication comes from there. Single parenting should only be the case because a spouse has died or because divorce has taken place. It must not be by design. To simply say, well, I'm a woman, I'm getting on in years, uh, therefore I can have a, uh, a child and I will raise that child on my own. That's to overlook God's picture. The design of God. Because as children grow up, they must have, as I said, the masculine fatherly figure and the feminine motherly figure. But also you will notice that a lot of social misfits that end up often giving headaches to law enforcement officers a lot of them come from broken homes. It's already suggesting to you that someone is missing. You're trying to raise a human being with only one hand when you were meant to have both hands to do it. I can go on the same, but all I want to do here is to insist that, brethren, we must teach that. 
We must teach that. Because it's the biblical norm. The biblical norm. Now finally, I want us to go back to Matthew 19. Because what we notice from Matthew 19, after Jesus says that, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, Jesus says, so they are no longer two but one flesh. And then he says, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. He says, they are no longer two, but one. Yes, there are still two human beings with all the gifts and graces that God has imbued them with. But you see, God considers two people who get married that they have now become one unit. And that's important. They're not just living under the same roof, sharing a common bed, and having sex. They are one entity. And it is because of that that God, Jesus says here, what therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. In other words, marriage is God's idea. And he is the one who joins two people together into marriage, into one. Let me try and put it this way to you. That even non-Christians, their marriages bring them to become one. Whether... It's the word of Hindus or African culture or whatever else it might be. God still considers that as a union for which they must be stewards, for which he will judge them on the final day if they mess it up. And therefore, just because they do not acknowledge him as Lord and Savior, does not mean that they can be swapping wives and husbands at will. As I said earlier on, it's a creation aspect. And consequently, they must still live according to the way God ordained marriage to be. They have no right to simply say, I don't like the way your nose has become. I'm quitting. Their maker is the one who says, through providence, I brought you together into this institution that I have made. You have no right to break it up. Your relatives have no right to come in and break it up. It is a permanent bond. Allow me to quickly say this. That notice Jesus went to the beginning before sin entered the world. And before sin entered the world, there was no death. So it's not even, as we put it in marriage vows, for better or for worse, until death parts us. In the original design of marriage, that last part wasn't even there. The moment you got in, the door locked behind you. There was no door to get out. In other words, if Adam and Eve had never sinned, and this world is a good, say, 6,000, 10,000, for some of you, maybe it's 10 million, I don't know, years old, 
Well, I want to assure you, they would still be married. Uh huh. Because it's permanent. It's permanent. It's part of his definition. And that's why Jesus says, What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. In tomorrow's session, I'll be dealing with us pastoring troubled marriages. But one of the things we should say from the very beginning is to individuals going through a troubled marriage, is to say to them, look, in the eyes of God, there actually aren't a few doors around for you to already begin entertaining. Therefore, what you should be concentrating on is how to resolve those difficulties by you as a husband loving your wife 100%. And you as a wife submitting and supporting your husband's leadership 100%. That's God's definition of marriage. That's marriage as God intended it to be as it was coming off the factory line. Now, as we go on to see tomorrow, something happened after that. Sin came into the world. We'll talk about that later. The thing I want us to do tonight is to put a, a full stop there. Or as Americans would say, a period. Not a comma, but a period. Because that's what Jesus did. Do you realize that he, he actually stopped there? Until they said, oh, no, hang on, hang on. But what about Moses? And then he went on to talk about this Moses thing. But in terms of marriage, he actually stopped there. He simply said, therefore, what God has put together, don't dare separate. Is that what we do? Let me hurry on to close. This is what we learn from the example of Jesus. To help us today as we teach on marriage in a secular age. Let's face it, brethren. It's definitely not the secular view. It's not. It's not what our societal laws have legislated. in our national constitutions, in, in uh, the, the books of the laws of our nations. But let's remember that our role as a church is to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. So we're not supposed to be coping the world. We should be leading the world. They should be learning about marriage from us. And especially from us who are the preachers. We should not be an echo of the laws of the land or our cultural norms. We should be a megaphone that says, this is what the Bible says. Have you not read? And thankfully for us, as I already hinted, we have the role model of Christ and his church. For those of us who are believers, that in itself helps us to know how to deal with our marriages. We have the example of Christ in his sacrificial love for the church. And then we have the example of the church that submits to the lordship of Christ. May I also add that we have the blood of Christ for forgiveness. And we ought to thank God for that. Because I think we'll all agree that we've stumbled in our marriages quite a bit. We've not only needed 
our spouse's forgiveness. We've needed God's forgiveness. And it is available through the shed blood of Christ. So all of us can put our past mistakes behind us and start afresh. But we also have the spirit of God to energize us. So there's no excuse for us to say, ah, but that's a high standard. Who, who can live by that? Well, the Spirit of God in our hearts should be inspiring us towards those great heights. So, we have the privilege, brethren, as the world sees two sinners living out biblical marriage it will cause them to ask the question, how can that be? How? And thankfully, we can point them to the cross, that it is in the cross that we have found forgiveness and we have found the ability in the cross. It's not about me and my ability. It is the salvation that Christ purchased on the cross. And we can say to them, that can be yours too. Come to Christ. And one place you will see that he has really saved you will be what will be happening in your marriage and in your home. May that be true as we teach biblical marriage in this same secular age. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that your word is very clear. There is no equivocations about marriage. We realize the heights from which we have fallen and we plead that you help us, especially those of us who are preachers, not only to teach this truth, but to live it out as well. That our church members will look at our marriages and our family lives as examples, as a challenge to them, concerning how you want us to live as your children. Father, save us from succumbing to the pressure of both our cultural norms and our secular age. Especially as preachers, keep us faithful to the biblical picture. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.